my show voice. It's Heather Gold, one of your hosts of Tumble Vision. Welcome to Tumble Vision. It's a weekly salon style podcast where we talk about the art of social engagement in business, tech, and culture. It's how you collaborate in a networked age. So, how do you run things when life isn't a bunch of command control hierarchies? It's Tumble. So, we ex- explore the impact of tumbling and all of this uh, with. with People doing, we think, the most interesting work around tumbling in the world. And what is tumbling? It is an old Yiddish word that literally meant a noisemaker. It was someone who was hired to make sure everyone had fun at the wedding. So they entertained, but it wasn't just all about them. It was making sure everybody was engaged. And that's really at the heart of what it means to live in a more human economy. Um, I'm joined by, as always, the other hosts uh, this week. I'm a comedian and an artist who's into technology, business, and politics, and joining me is Kevin Marks. You are a? I'm a programmer, a technologist who's into comedy and um, business, yes. And you're joining us from Silicon Valley, right, this week? From San Jose, yes. San Jose. We're always in different places. It's part of the fun. And also on the West Coast of the U.S., Deb Schultz. Hi, all. I'm sitting in uh, San Francisco where I guiltily, we are going through a heat wave. <laughs> and I am a, a social web designer, strategist, ideator who loves uh, connecting people and ideas and uh, horseback riding. And this sounds like a date opening. <laughs> and by the way, one of my other shows is called Yentacast, where we do nothing but find Deb a wife. I'm sorry. I'm the one who needs a wife. She needs a husband. And yes. our Anyway, our guest this week uh, is the amazing Umer Haig. Uh, and how would you like to self-define Umer? Uh, I uh, that was that was far too uh, kind of you. I uh, all I can say by way of introduction is that I'm busy discussing uh, '80s hair metal with the guys in the pre-show chat room. So <laughs> that is a really important uh, ability. You should put that at the head of your resume. There's a lot. 80s are very big on Tumble Vision, uh, but all of us are very involved in things that help people connect with lots of other people. I've done it in performance, and Kevin's done it with tech, and Deb does it all the time in business and everywhere else. So the first thing we're going to do um, in Tumble Vision is we're going to dive into some of the week- stories this week that we think are relevant to this, this kind of new networked world. First of all, there was something this week called, if you might, if you're on Twitter, you would have seen it, CMAD, Community Manager Appreciation Day. Now, Deb, isn't one of the reasons we use Tumblr is because we're not such fans of the phrase community manager? Yeah, I go back and forth on it. One of the reasons that we didn't like the word community managers, I think it, you can't manage community, A. And more importantly, I've been frustrated. We've all been frustrated with the fact that in most companies, community managers are not viewed strategic. They're sort of the webmasters of the <laughs> of totally. the of the of the mid nineties. So the reason we wanted to choose a different word was not so much that we don't love community managers, because what they do is critical to this new economy and we love them. We think they deserve to be viewed on a more higher strategic level um, and more central to the business. So um though we embrace the community manager appreciation day, we think they deserve more. And Kevin, do you think CMAD did anything for people? Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure people like being recognized for a day, but the point is that you recognize them all the time. It's not sort of an annual pat on the head that you need. It's, right. it's um, recognition that this is at the core of the business. And also the point about um, 
community manager says make these people stop you know make them go away and not bring them into the conversation so that was one of the original you know reasons we ended up using the word tumor in the first place was to try and find a better f- a phrase for this um I, you know chief conversation officer is something that um i've seen people use which is which is much closer to what, what's what you actually want from this but yeah it's, and, it's, it's uh, not, as as uh, Zena just said it's not, it's the title that's the problem not the people many of the people right. That, that we we've celebrated here have have been officially titled community manager um, and have been would have been doing the you know, much richer thing that, that that we want them to be doing. Umair, any thoughts on the phrase community manager or this this idea of community manager appreciation day? Does it kind of yeah, smack a little I, bit? Go ahead. To- totally, I I think it's um, it, it's really interesting that you guys picked up on it, right? I mean, one of the things that. Uh, I guess that, that we've discussed in the past and that we'll discuss maybe in this show is, is the idea of uh, management and 20th century management and you know, all of, the, all of the, the, the ways, the manifold ways that it makes us miserable. And so to kind of put you know, management and community together is, is, is really a, an oxymoron in many ways. That is so exactly right and succinct. That is the point. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Yes, yes. you do not manage community. You catalyze. You tumult. You serve it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. Like, like I, mean, I remember Derek you Kowasik, serve it. I don't know what yeah. year it was, just being so adamant. He was like, oh, I know. It was when JPEG, uh, he, you can look back. We've had him on the show. We'll have him back. Um, he's amazing and really a pioneer of community on the web. And uh, a site that he created with his wife, Heather Champ, JPEG Magazine, which was one of the first, you know, ground up kind of models where it was going to be community created magazines right uh it got sort of taken over in one of those kind of social network style startup confrontations between people and and he just wrote this thing saying you can't own community no one owns community good luck absolutely absolutely i mean when you know when you think about it there is probably no surer way to kill a real coherent community than to apply the principles of you know what we know as management to it Right. I mean, it's just the ultimate community killer. And also the the struggle that I'm having in general, working with a lot of big businesses like I have this past year, is also when is community, when does that, that function of a community manager, when is it really about community and engaging and servicing customers or when is it just a new PR mouthpiece for a company? Mm. And that really is a case-by-case basis based on the company's culture and the individual's culture and it's a, hopefully something that will be improving. But very often these days I'm seeing a lot of people who are really just – just because you're the person in charge of sort of the, the tweet ac- tweeting account for your company does not make you a community manager, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Just like if you have a Facebook page, you have a community. Of course. So that's the other reason I'm starting to hate the word community. <laughs> so, so now we've, we've, now we've, we've uh, I think, so speaking of a place that needs community, who needs a feeling of community more than a place with a failing economy, America? And we had this week <laughs> Obama's State of the Union address in which he tried to mm, pump you up. <laughs> and <laughs> very pump-like, so <laughs> did you feel managed? Did you feel appreciated? Like he gave you a little hashtag happiness? <laughs> what do you, Kevin? Did it work for you? The new year? Are you an American yet, Kevin? No, I'm not an American yet. I'm, I'm a, an Englishman still, though I probably should become an American soon. Yeah. I've been here 13 years. Honest man of time. yourself, I did it. It's time. <laughs> yes. Everyone's doing it, you know. 
So what do you think, Kevin, State of the Union? Did he tumble? Um, I have to confess I didn't watch it. I just read some of the coverage around it. So I, I can't give you a straight reaction to it. Well, what, 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 what did you make of it? Uh, me? Well, I was tweeting my head off. <laughs> <laughs> I, you yeah, and I were tweeting. having a little yeah. psychic tweeting <laughs> loving. So I thought I was going to leave us because once I start going, it might not stop. So De- Deb, State of the Union, did it, did it register for you? Anyone in the, in the chat room, let us know. I watched I watched half of it um, and listened to part of it and I and I, I do realize that I wished I'd watched more because of course um, the emphatic communication that goes on in the room is the best. Who rolls their eyes? <laughs> Who looks really straight faced? Yeah. I, I found him um, incredibly subdued and not he did not pump up at all and a little less tumuly than he's been in the past. Um, you know, I'd be curious to hear from from Umer what his point of view was in in connection with uh, sort of his thoughts on the economy. And in a lot of ways, he was actually anti cheerleadery because he went on about how every other company country's doing better than us, and we need to. Yeah. I think he was trying to set up. I, I think I heard some pundits say this afterwards. You know, Americans like competition, and the Super Bowl's coming up, and I think he wanted to. You know, the Sputnik moment, and the yeah. you know, let's yeah. get totally. us going, kind of thing. I think, um, first of all, I want to say I really wanted Lox and a Bagel today because of him. So he had that much impact on me. He had a big joke about smoked salmon, Deb. It was his big moment, (laughs) the big comedic moment. Um, It actually was the most real moment. It's just one of the reasons it registered so highly. It it read a little bit, even though it was was obviously written. If you ever want to diffuse an audience, just drop in some Jewishisms or some Yiddish. Yeah, drop a Jew in the room. They'll be so confused. I I don't think – he tumbled. I wouldn't say so in this no. sense. Obama has some of this skill set, which makes him quite unique, and I'd say probably the first president to do it. He's a liminal person. By that I mean, I mean not just because of his racial makeup. He's lived between different cultures, and I think people who are used to going between worlds, as you heard all of us describe what our interests were and the kinds of things we do, it gives you a bit of a, a leg up in trying to make connections because you you've already learned how to translate naturally. Ooh. So he has that skill, that's for sure, and he's a very good. He's a very resourced person himself, so he stays quite calm no matter what's going on, and that that can be helpful. But I found in this case, even though he said many ideas that were supposedly Republican ideas in a way to sort of reach out, supposedly, and that could be – you could theoretically see it as tumbly. It was so – you know, because the whole thing is so orchestrated – and so obviously, yeah. like, hi, you get this political line, you get that political line, which in a way is a little bit what Community Management Appreciation Day is. And, and Umer, I'm interested in a structural meta level, how you <laughs> would look at this in terms of if this is something that just is inherent in the industrial era economy, that there's these sort of tokenistic informational moments of I'm going to give you your uh, – it's done with rhetoric mm. and I think it's even done <laughs> process-wise in management and business, this idea like we're going to – we're going to say we're dealing with this by doing this little thing when everyone in the room knows we're not dealing with this, right? We're not really approaching what's underneath. Yeah. And, and that's the big obvious flaw in the State of the Union address was it's, complete ignorance of what's really going on. And, then, and to yeah. add the cherry on the Sunday he came up with or someone came up with winning the future, which really I thought South Park wrote that one, honest to God. Um, so, Umer, please explain why – the notion of winning the future is hilarious. Well, you know, w- winning winning the future is, is I mean, there's there's many levels of 
which we can critique Obama, right? I mean, winning the future is, is absurd because of, of the abbreviation to begin with, right? Number one. Winning in the future number two is, is, is absurd because the future is not one. Right? Future is created. Future is created uh, by us. It's a, it's a social construction, a human creation. It's not uh, a matter of combat and conquest. And when we used to see it that way, uh, I think that we got ourselves into a lot of trouble. And I think we have to learn from, from you know, one of the big points that you guys keep making about tumbling is about real sort of empathic connection with people. Language counts. Language counts a lot. And to frame uh, your, your fundamental goal as, as one of competition and combat and conquest is, is really to miss the point about what's happened over the last several years with the economy. But, you know, this is I mean, where to begin with, with Obama these days, right? I mean, watching the State of the Union, I felt like, I don't know, have you ever kind of... Uh, like not seen an old friend for, for, for five years and then you sort of go see them again and, and you're really just uninspired and bored. That's kind, of how I, that's kind of how I felt watching Obama. And you know, what really struck me about watching Obama was at the end, if you, if you looked at him, I kind of got the impression that he was scared and he was a little bit, uh, Ooh. He was a little bit scared and a little bit uh, nervous Ten- at the end. Tentative there. was the word I yeah, was thinking. Yeah, very tentative. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's really insightful. Now, why did we not hear a single person in mainstream media say that? You know, again, I think that part of the problem that, that you guys were discussing before is that the State of the Union, like so many of our of our social and, and political and, and, and managerial events, is just a ritual, right? And it, right. there's there's no substance behind it, really. At the end of the day, it's it's predictable. It's tedious. It's scripted. You know, I was in London. I stayed up till till two a.m. to watch it, and, and ten minutes in, I thought to myself, "Why, what, God, why am I doing this?" Because it's you know, every five minutes, people are getting up to clap, and Obama's you know reciting nostrums. So it's a ritual, and we have to get past ritualizing kind of these 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 fetishes of the past. Um, that's the first step, right? and, and building, I think, those deeper. And, yeah, and by this, you mean not a meaningful ritual. Which we've talked about Absolutely. prior shows, because Heather with Heather Woodbury, but you had a kind of um, oh, what's a good word for that? Where it just becomes like rote. Yeah, well, I mean, what did, sorry, go ahead. No, I was thinking I, I, I'm going to challenge you a little, just because I know you can handle it. I, I think that there <laughs> is there is a, a time and a place for these kind of grand gestures. The problem is we're and, and, and ritual. The problem is they're set they're, they're structured in an old model. So there's probably a lot more interest. I think the the concept of stopping and assessing and doing a state of the union is very important. The fact that it is supposed to have some, you know, grand expectations around it. Um, cause we used to wait a whole year to hear what was happening. We live in this ongoing universe today, real time ongoing. So I think there are probably ways to restructure this ritual in better ways for this new economy, right? And this new yeah. complexity. Um, I don't know how off the top of my head, but I'm sure it involves, uh, more tumbling, <laughs> you know, making it more of a conversation, perhaps making it more of a town hall, maybe yeah, than a state. Ab- absolutely. I mean, what, you know, one of the things I keep banging on about is, is the idea of having, you know, what I, what I say is shifting from value propositions to value conversations. Right? Mm-hmm. State of the Union is one gigantic, long, tedious set of propositions. 
right? And then we go away, and over the course of the next two, three, four years, we see how they work out. It's kind of the wrong way around to do things when we have the tools to do it the, the other way around. Now. And is that at the, the heart of what you're writing about in Capitalist Manifesto, that, that inverse switch? Uh, it's, it's one of the ideas. You know, it's one of the ideas. I mean, I, I think it's very important for us to uh, build an economy that is driven by connections, not transactions. Um, and perhaps, you know, the most pathetic and kind of, I don't know, false part about the State of the Union is that it's a set of transactions that's playing out really at the end of the day, right? Right. Political transactions. Mm-hmm. It's right. sort of a setup to allow transactions to occur as though trans- transactions will achieve the thing that we want rather than getting real about the thing that we want, which was <clears> interesting because he opened – and this, this connects, I think, quite well with your book, Umer. He, mm. His first sentences – sounded like uh, Obama and the State of the Union, like yeah. he was trying to separate um, how we've measured ourselves and our success, as yeah. he didn't use the word transactional, really right. around GDP, yeah. e- economically, from yep. really how it serves people. And, totally. and that seems to me to be really important to your work and all of the most interesting environmental and economic Ooh. work I'm seeing seems to be about saying GDP seems irrelevant. Why are we using it? I mean, that, that seems to be yeah. one of the things you're writing about. Do yeah, I have that I, right in your book? Totally. I, I think that's absolutely sort of central to, to my book. I mean, in, in my book, I, I make the argument, basically, uh, that what we are going through is not, you know, kind of a great depression or a great recession. It's not an event. It's right. not a, a transient kind of phenomenon. I call it a great imbalance. And it's kind of a flaw in the structure of things. And the flaw in the structure of things is the same flaw that's wired into GDP, which is that we uh, overcount benefits and we undercount costs. Mm-hmm. And that's the great imbalance. Mm. And so when we have an economy that... God, that's so concise of, when you say... Can you say that again, just slow, so I make sure I have it? We undercount... We undercount, so tweetable. We, under, we, <laughs> undercount, we undercount costs and we overcount benefits. And... When you when when that's kind of the, the fundamental guiding principle of your economy, when when that flaw is hardwired into your institutions, the result is kind of crisis after crisis after crisis. Mm. So so the great imbalance is something deeper than just a transient event. And it it's seems, kind of, and is the. I mean, I know I've seen a lot of critique on the undercounting costs, but I haven't mm. seen as much critique. I've always wondered if is one a consequence of the other? Is the overcounting benefits there as a way of not seeing, like paying no attention to the man behind the curtain or all the things you're poisoning or people you're stepping on to get your so-called value? Well, I think that I think you know I think they're slightly different concepts. I, I would put the overcounting benefits part this way, which is that uh, the stuff that is piled high on the bleak exurban shelves is not necessarily stuff that uh, accrues the benefits that we think it does and that, uh, that, that, that are meaningful to us, right? So a simple example of kind of overcounting benefits is, is, to, is to look at the idea that GDP is, is, is growing, but you know, quality of life, however you want to measure it, through happiness or through well-being, or many different kinds of indicators have been stacked for many decades, right? So something is being seriously overcounted by our economy 
if over the last 20 to 30 years, GDP has you know, kind of skyrocketed, but our actual quality of life, our happiness, all of these other things have stayed flat. And the quality of life being the thing that the economy supposedly exists to support. Yeah. But I mean, it seems as though that basic proposition isn't necessarily understood. I mean, Kevin, you've worked in lots of huge companies. Have any of the ones you've worked in, including Google, do they feel like, yes, we exist to make that thing happen? Um, to, I mean, to, to some extent, they, you know, they, Google more than most, I think, was, was trying to say, okay, what can we do over the long term? How can we make the world a better place? And there's, you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff that Google d- deliberately does um, with, with those, those kind of things in mind. Um, and the, the way they've set the capital structure of Google up means that they're not as focused on short-term results because they, they can't um, – because the founders have the, have the master share of, of the voting. So they can't be chucked off the board so easily. So there's – of the companies I've worked for, that, that's probably the closest. Um, Apple also has some sense of long-term – um, and, and aspirations to those directions, um, but but has hasn't I haven't seen them following through in this in the same way. I know uh, there was you, you were you were there in the in the nineties too, and there was a lot of that bicycles for the, the mind. Of those the nineties, yes. <laughs> dream of the nineties, bicycles for the mind, and all the. All were the we dreaming in the nineties? Oh, we were, we were hanging it on. <laughs> we were we were talking about a paradigm shift. I think that phrase yes. is used every yes. five seconds in the middle. <laughs> paradigm shift and disintermediation. Oh, nice. yes. what a word! Drink, everybody. We're going to push. Technology is going to save your life. Point cast. Right? Back web. There's your little uh, time travel, internet time travel. So we do time travel every week. So I think they're fun. So, Mayor, are there actual companies that you think really do uh, point to or countries that say, yes, the goal of all this stuff is to make people's quality of life better? Because I think that basic assumption isn't is seen as sort of a pussy, crazy, washed-up socialism <laughs> by a lot of at least Americans. Yeah, I, you know, look to, to an extent, I agree with you. It, it is seen as this uh, as this very uh, kind of wimpy thing, right, in America. And and what I want to suggest is part of the reason that America has has kind of lost its preeminence globally because we're not keeping pace with the changes that are happening in the rest of the world. Let me give you a simple example. Uh, there's a country in the world that, that announced uh, a month ago that it's going to update its GDP to, to, to be green. So to begin counting just, just a small number of these you know, hidden costs that is not counted by real GDP, that, that country is India. So, that's a big I mean, shift right I'm there. I'm a big fan. I'm a, I, can I just say, can we buy shares in India? Because I... <laughs> <laughs> want to buy shares in India. I, I only that. got to spend six weeks there, but in about two weeks, I was like, they're going to kick America's ass so hard, they're not even going to see what happened to their ass. Well, more than that, they're going to kick China's ass, which I think is... You think? Oh, that's interesting. Umeri, who do you who do you like in that matchup? How's that? I'm going to pretend I'm on Fox News. Who do you like? China versus <laughs> India in the ring. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're ticking the wrong frame again. Of, of... Wait, aren't we all in agreement that <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a zero-sum game anymore? What show am I listening to? Where do I'm, we go? I'm yeah, trying so... to have some comedy. Uh, no, kicking ass. <laughs> yeah, we were kicking ass. And it's like, we will massage your ass with Ayurvedic oil. <laughs> <laughs> with the kicking, what is with the kicking? Okay. So, they, so what? Why do you think this happened in India? Why do they want to count more costs? 
look, I, I think this shift is happening in, in many countries, right? So it's, it's, it's starting to happen in Europe. It is starting to happen. Uh, China has actually been debating the same thing for the last 10 years, and now it's kind of mired down politically, but China has been at the forefront of this. So, so the reason that I think a lot of these guys want to do it uh, to make that, that shift that, that I think in America is often seen as some kind of, you know, insane socialistic plot to undermine the economy. The reason that they want to make that shift is because it makes them a stronger economy, right? It, it, it makes people better off. It makes companies, uh, it incentivizes companies to make things that are kind of globally in demand, right? It, it sets the stage for a 21st century economy. And until that stage is set, the actors can only play out their, the, the actors can only rehearse their parts. The problem we have in the States today is that the actors are rehearsing. The stage has not been set. And so there are companies that, that are trying to forge ahead. And I talk about some of them in my book. For example? It's a, well, it's a surprising cast of companies, right? So, so when, when I set out to research this book, uh, the companies that I did find meeting my criteria for what I call constructive capitalists were not companies that I expected to find nor were the companies that I hope to find, frankly. So, so one of my, 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 my biggest constructive capitalists is, is Walmart, right? And, and in many ways, uh, I think Amazing. it's easy to argue. E- oh, I thought they were supposed to be evil, right? No, right. Well, I think it's very easy to, to argue that, that Walmart does have many shortcomings still. But I also think it's very difficult to argue that Walmart today isn't one of the world's most serious institutional innovators, that they're not kind of rewiring themselves as a business to deal with this great imbalance, right? So we probably all know about their three big sustainability goals, right? The first one is to achieve zero waste. The second one is to uh, sell only products and services that benefit the environment. And, And the third one, I think, is to use only renewable energy, right? So this stuff was announced, what, I think almost five years ago now. Uh, and a huge number of companies have now followed in their way, but at the time it was radical stuff. So I think that there are companies that are trying to forge ahead in the States. I think that for many reasons, the States is lagging behind. So in fact, Heather, let me go back to your point. And in the States, we often see this shift as a wimpy thing. Somebody in the chat room just said, so how do we make this shift? Can, can companies do it? Can businesses do it? I think the truth is, can governments do it? I think the truth is it's a systemic Right? So everybody needs to work together. That means companies, that means governments, but it also means people. And I don't want to use the word consumers. It also means people. And what is really, really problematic in the States today, and this is based on, I'll share with you some of the recent research we've done at the lab. It's really problematic in the States today is that in China and India, the stage is not just being set by governments. It's being set by people who are demanding, uh, green products, ethical products, more sustainable products, just more meaningful stuff. They, about 70% in our terms of people in India and China demand meaningful products. In the States, only about 30% of people do. So, so we have a problem in the States, which is that we're not setting, no, none of our constituencies are setting the stage for a 21st century economy. There's, there's plenty of blame to go around, is what I'm saying. And so the question is, how do we fix that? And that is what I didn't hear Obama talk about at all in the State of the Union, right? I heard him talk about in these old kind of tedious humdrum terms about... It's interesting because to you, it's old. And to me, someone mentioned Tom Friedman already in the chat room. I can't remember who it was, Daryl. 
is, Daryl, I felt like the, it sounded like the talk should have been given 10 years ago. Yeah. I could be wrong, but Tom Friedman is, you know, um, a popularizer of old ideas. So it seemed to me that, I mean, old relatively speaking, not for the general audience yet. So maybe it's not old to everyone. Yeah. But, um, I, I, look, to me, it felt really, really tired and dated. And probably the biggest, biggest uh, problem I had with it uh, was that he kind of resurrected the ghost of, of trickle-down economics in a way. Right. So on the one hand, he called for the government to invest in education, which is good, and to invest in innovation, which is uh, good, but it's also a, kind of a meaningless nostrum. But then he also resurrected the ghost of trickle-down economics, as he's been doing over the last couple of years, and saying basically if we you know, cut taxes on business and, and, and cut taxes on the rich, the, the prosperity will trickle down to everyone. And what we know from the last 30 years of economic history is that that frankly hasn't happened. So, so now that we have like about 20 minutes uh, left. Let's maybe maybe we should stay in this area of relationship between countries and governments and, and business. Anne was asking how far government should venture into the market, then in a sort of constructive capitalist sense. I, I think or, that is that the, the right framing, or would you reframe it? I, I I would reframe it. I think that you know again, what we have to do is kind of be able to reframe the way that that we think about these things. And in the 20th century, we were kind of fed this, this line that uh, the government and business are natural adversaries. And if your goal is to build an economy where the only uh, goal is profit and output, that's probably certainly true. If your goal is to build an economy where, uh, <laughs> which generates kind of a real prosperity, it's probably not the case. And so I think there's a very... Uh, deep possibility for real collaboration between business and government. And I think it goes back to what I was saying uh, before. So in India, the government is working quite hard. So, so, so it's defeating uh, business in many ways. But through things like green GDP, uh, it's kind of setting the stage. And so I think the role for, for government is to help kickstart these new institutions whether it's uh, green GDP is one example. There's another example that kind of has a grassroots movement in the States, which is uh, the idea of for-benefit corporations, right? So they're kind of a, a new thing, which is not a non-profit. It's not a for-profit. It's a corporation which has a legal right to protect stakeholder benefits as well, right? So that's another institutional innovation. This is it. It's another place where government can play a role. But this is about finding new ground, it's not about debating in yesterday's terms. So I have a question, which which may or may not be directly related to this. One of the things that I, in my not being an economist hat on, am often frustrated with is you want to move and create new framing and new ways of thinking and new GDP and new measurements sure. and new goals. And yet we're, the, the public markets are very stuck in this quarterly earnings model. So what's the transition from one to the other? Because we all know that you can't get a lot of these really important initiatives and change off the ground quarterly, and it takes a really unique company that's either lucky enough to have a lot of cash or a government that's lucky enough to have a lot of cash. I think it's one thing that America struggles with right now and not be in debt to really make these leaps. So do 
do you have an idea of what that transition would be or look I, or I uh, so 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 I think there's kind of two answers to that question right I think that one is that uh, uh, I see many different companies making the transition because they want to be ahead of the curve. And I often say, you know, Walmart is the world's biggest company. If they can make the transition, then, then surely most companies can, right? Because Walmart is a company with a huge amount of baggage and a huge amount of, uh, formerly, a huge amount of resistance to consider any of these ideas. So if they can make the transition, I think it's possible for almost any company to make the transition. But I think there's also another answer to that question, which goes back to my point about systemic change. I think that there has to be kind of, uh, you know, in the book I refer to it as an economic enlightenment. I think there has to be a, an enlightenment within society that reaches across constituencies. And at the lab, when we go out and, and we look at different constituents, constituencies in society, we see preferences changing uh, in different parts of the world at different rates. And America's big problem today is that constituencies aren't working together to make that shift happen. And, and in a sense, the question you asked me is still framed in those 20th century terms, right? Which is that, mm -hmm. how, can, how can one party make this happen? But, but the question is, we all have to kind of realize that we're, number one, we're in this together. Yeah, how could any two, party make this happen? Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, no one party okay. can make it happen. It's true. Uh, so, so that's number one. You're saying no party can make it happen. And number two? And number two, the question is, what are we trying to make happen? Right. So, so, so the first 20th century assumption is that one party can, can do it on their own. The second 20th century assumption the, is that the it is kind of, you know, more output or kind of a better product. But the it in this case that we're chasing it is very, very different. Right. The it that we're chasing in this case is something that affects all of us. It, it's a more meaningful prosperity. And so that, that's kind of the first thing that, that we have to understand. And if I fault Obama or, or the American economy today, it's probably uh, because it's probably to say that we're not discussing things in either of those terms, that the it is not right. And that the kind of understanding for the need for collaboration isn't there. Let me, let me put that to you more concretely. So, so when Walmart made this big shift to do it, they went out and kind of turned their business inside out, right? They, they rebuilt it mm -hmm. on the idea of value networks. And lest you think these value networks are kind of a fad or, or a term or uh, just kind of a hip piece of jargon, they're far from it. They consist of, uh, you know, academics and NGOs and, yep. and all kinds of people external to Walmart, Walmart. And it's these people who actively not just help Walmart make decisions, but make decisions for Walmart. So, well, it means that your business is part of an entire ecosystem as opposed, to a silo, as opposed to a silo. You've got, you've, the metaphor I've used is you've got porous walls today, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And that, that goes back to this, this change in mindset that has to happen first, which, which I think is starting to happen at so Walmart. Are you talking about a, what other people call a consciousness change? Because, I mean, isn't enlightenment like a couple centuries ago or is it the same deal? It's like we view things a certain way and now we need to understand no, that we're connected so, to other people. I think, yeah, I think it, that's a very sharp point. You know, in the book I try to make the point that we, you're right, we did have an enlightenment a couple of centuries ago. I think it's the assumptions of that enlightenment that are running out of steam. 
Right? And so the fundamental assumptions of that enlightenment are kind of that rational thinking can lead you to an objective truth, that we're all kind of disconnected, right? So, so I think that these assumptions are what are losing steam. And it's these assumptions that are going to have to be questioned. To interject, but we had a really interesting point made from one of our longtime Tumblers here, uh, Myers, exactly in what you're saying. He's saying, okay, so if things, if you can't have this one central idea that works, why are you writing a book with a central idea? <laughs> I think <I'm> <laughs> if I got there wrong, but he wrote it. I mean, his question is much more eloquent if I was going to read the whole thing out, but that's my general sum up and like even calling it a manifesto, which is sort of a calling back. Is it just a marketing thing or do you really see what you're doing? It's like, yep, everyone sign up in my petition here and this is the answer. Uh, you know, if the question is why did I just write a book, I think that that's, that's wrong. You know, I've, I've put, put pretty much all of these ideas out on my blog over the last two, three years. I right. think it's and more I, I, the idea that there could be a single idea or a single change that could make a difference in the face of, oh, things we learned from post-structuralism or other things that kind of, or even the thing you said earlier, like, okay, no one thing is ever going to be an answer by itself. I, you know, so, so I'm not suggesting that by any means that I have the answer. What I am suggesting is that, you know, given this huge crisis, it's probably necessary for, for most of us to, to go back and question many of those old assumptions. So, you know, as I say in the book, it's not really meant to be a set of answers. It's meant to be a toolkit for you to find your own answers. Right. Well, you, you, and, talk, and you talk in the book about... Sorry. Kevin? You, you talk in the book about um, Adam Smith's World of Nations and how he reimagined the world that existed then mm-hmm. um, by coming up with... Um, you know, new models for how people could interchange, and effectively, the division of labor was the was the big piece that he totally. um, brought in there. Totally. Um, so, you're saying that okay, we've we've done that bit, and now we need to get past that, or or, or is that just um, yeah? So it's, it's no longer separation of labor into into interchangeable tasks. Absolutely. Um, okay. Absolutely. That was what I was getting from it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that. You know, if we, if we go back and so, so Adam Smith's a very interesting guy in two ways. So, so number one, the, one of the points I make in the book is that when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, it was by no means clear that capitalism was going to sweep the world. And, and he didn't even use the word capitalism in the book. Right. So, so it was a really visionary kind of exercise. Number two, uh, he didn't, you, you know, those, those principles were, were kind of written in a world that almost predated the full blown industrial revolution. And what he did was kind of, you know, try and piece together the economic implications of all of this, this kind of industrialization happening. And he did a great job of it. But I think today it's those principles which have run out of steam. And absolutely, you know, I think the division of labor is, is one of them. We know the downsides, right? So it's a kind of de-skilling and detuning and all these awful things. Right. But, I mean, the, the, the other thing that, that's, that struck me about what, what you commented about um, – <laughs> What it took to set up a, a corporation you know, b- before you could actually just register one, you need yeah. an act of parliament, a, a letter patent, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that struck me as very like what the you know the so-called intellectual property regime. Absolutely. That uh, Obama was talking up and saying you know using patents as a as an indicator of something useful, as opposed to using them as an indicator of of like weird feudal monopolies that people have managed to get granted. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think that in, in – let's go back to Adam Smith. I think in Adam Smith's big day, 
one of the big innovations was that the barrier to entry to, to forming the most basic kind of organization, the, the corporation, right, or, or the joint stock company, as it was called in those days, fell. So, so you know, at one point you needed a, a royal charter, then you needed a license, then you could just kind of go out and, and, and pay a few bucks and, and, and form one. Today, I think we're going through an equally profound change, which are that the barriers to entry to many different kinds of organization are falling, right? Like the, like the one that we are engaging in here right now. So, so the question is, now that we can kind of organize in many, many different ways, what do we do with it? Because we know that when we take yesterday's forms of organization and put them into a hyper-connected world, the result is catastrophe, which is what's hit us right now. Right? Because going back to my original point, those things are built uh, for a very different world. And in this world, they undercount costs and overcount benefits. It sounds a little bit, Umer, like you're almost just talking about needing some kind of way of counting or evaluating or uh, reflecting well, that's based on reality instead of an attachment to an old structure and trying to say, no, let's make everything just fit into this model I have. Absolutely. I think we've got a major reality dysfunction, but I think what we need are new institutions, right? So, you know, when when we go back and we look at what Institution is a slippery word, but let me give you a definition of it that, that I really like from the Nobel Prize winning economist Douglas North. He says, institutions are the human constraints that shape interaction. Right? So I think that's a very uh, precise definition. Myers, I just want to say, Myers, let me know if that answers your question. <laughs> right. Myers has an issue with the word institution, and that is a really – see, your definition of all these common phrases, Umer, is so different than I think what is collective – generally conventionally yeah. held yeah i like I, mean, I like mars reaction that it's beethoven versus coltrane it's jazz we need more jazz in business <laughs> which is a great metaphor I right your comedy oh, so so say can you say that again your your the definition you're liking of an institution so so the the insti- the definition of institution that i often use is is the, the human the humanly devised constraints that shape interaction Right? And so, so the problem that, that I think we have in the economy, this is really the point of the book, is that we are bound and shackled by uh, a set of industrial era institutions. And frankly, they make us miserable, meaningless, unhappy, tuned out, disconnected. And those are the things that are really standing in the way of prosperity. And so, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, shifting from propositions to conversations. It's one institution. Another institution that I, that I think is really central to building a 21st century economy is a 20th century institution or industrial age institution is a value chain. Fancy word for assembly line. Right. We have Only? to shift to... Isn't there a difference between a value chain and assembly? One is just about putting things together and the other is what good it does for you as a person? No, I think I think that look. So, so what what I'm what I say in the book is we have to shift from value chains to value cycles. Value chain is uh, kind of a glorified term for an assembly line in the sense that you know consider an industrial age assembly line. Everybody's in the same big room. You know, you're at one station, the other guy's at the next station. Put stuff together. Value chain is the same thing. It's just that the stations are in different parts of the world, but it's still a chain. It's still linear. So I think we've got to shift to value cycles, which are circular. It's only Absolutely. in loops that we can 
kind of redo things, right? Whether it's re recycling things or reusing things or even improving things. All of that stuff happens in loops, not in lines. That's so, so web, web businesses. Sorry, go ahead, Kevin. So, so that maps to what you were saying about Walmart realizing that they were a, a one-way funnel and they needed to make sure that they weren't totally. and were able to... Totally. So, you know, so the, you know the, 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 the sort of classic... Um, externalities thing is, is is taking the water from the river and polluting it and putting it back. Sure. Um, and so the answer is, if you put your intake downstream of your output, you make sure you, know, you make sure exactly. that the feedback will work the right way around. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's, Absolutely. It's, it's working from that model of saying, okay, if I'm taking this thing in and making it toxic, um, then or I'm you know actually the oldest one is just heating up the water. If you take in cold yeah. water and put out hot water. Um, mm -hmm. Downstream, all the bacteria bloom and kill all the fish. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's a, that's that's a that's a fantastic uh, example, and and that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and it's those right. institutions that that have to change, right? And and so so we can think of those in, in different ways, right? So so one way I can put it to you is to say that we have to shift from thinking in terms of lines to thinking in terms of loops. Oh gosh, yep. I could talk about that for five. Uh, hours unfortunately <laughs> we have in a loop <laughs> in a loop because if you if you uh, we have not very little time here unfortunately we're going to have a nice long after show we're going to have to wrap up soon so please stick around we'll still get into more stuff but uh we just have a couple um more minutes here through Maris, so i want to get to some other questions uh people had here todd barnard wants to know umer what uh, software companies or apps you think match your, your, your take on things, the new capitalist manifesto, and he's guessing, for an example, Google Voice offering a free unlimited send and receive SMS, sort of undermining uh, a cash cow for telcos for whom it costs very little to offer the service. Is that an example of a web, the web being disruptive? And I'm just thinking right after you're talking about value loops, what would be loopy about that? So, so, so I just did an interview which was published today uh, with VentureBeat that was called Silicon Valley's Thin Value Problem. Okay, and if, if you go to my Twitter stream, uh, or if you just search for that term on Twitter, I'm sure you'll find it in five seconds. And, and, and the point of the interview was to say that, uh, and, you know, and that's one of the questions the interviewer asked me, and, and I had to say that unfortunately, I think that Silicon Valley has what I call a disruption deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. I, don't think, I don't think it's disrupting much of anything. And I think the reason it likes to feel like it, anything, it is. It it's, it iter to, it's iterating these days. I don't think it's it's, it's, it's iterating. But, but it's part, iterating. Of the, part of the problem is that it does. So, so I call it the last bastion of 20th century capitalism, right? It's got this kind of macho culture where, where you know, it's, it's a bunch of funds investing in companies that chase profit and create shareholder value, right? So it's like all, all the 20th century stuff rolled into one. This is like the last bastion of 20th century capitalism. Even India is more of a 21st century capitalist than, than Silicon Valley now. And so it's unable to disrupt stuff. In fact, let me give you a better example of, of a technology, not even a technology, a very simple use of a technology that I think is, uh, and I suggest the statistics prove, is, is really disruptive. And that's M-Pesa, right? The, the money transfer service right. in Kenya. And so the last statistic I read, and, you know, who knows, maybe it's inflated by a few percent, but even if it is, it's still disruptive, said that uh, M-Pesa is, is responsible for, for north of 10% of, shifting north of 10% of Kenya's GDP. So, so that's a disruptive use of a technology. Right. 
So um, we're going to have time for one more. We've got so many um, questions here to dig into. Um, let's just say, yeah, the feminine is the whole thing. My whole, well, I'll talk about that at the end with my, some of my upcoming stuff that I'm working on and hopefully I'll get to swap thoughts more with you, Mayor. Um, oh, just some love, some people who just love you here. Let's see, <laughs> I'm still going to get through all the loving Will you be in my okay? What what do you think is a good interim business model? Uh, Judi- at Judico asks, and I suppose that question assumes are sort of industrial, and then this sort of new era. What happens in between? And to some degree, if you haven't made this consciousness change or enlightenment change, as you're calling it, how do you operate if you're not? I, I don't uh, look, know, I, I think go I, halfway. I think so. So I think there's two answers to that question. Right? I just want to so, add one more thing she asks because I think it's interesting. She says, "Is this about changing value perceptions?" It, it is. It is about understanding that what kind that what kind of value you create has got to change because what is valued by people in society is now changing. Okay. So so that's so that's step one. So step two is I can give you you know I'll give you a philosophical answer and then kind of a real world answer. Okay. So. Philosophical answer is to say that, you know, don't think in terms of business models, right? Part, part of uh, the, the kind of message that I'm trying to send is that business as we know it is probably not, uh, probably, probably an obsolete technology, probably an obsolete software for, for the economy. The, the real world answer is to say that you're going to have to manage kind of two or three competing priorities over the next five years. One is earning a near-term profit. Two is earning a near-term profit that matters in some way. Three is putting those two things together and building a measure of more meaningful kind of return to layer on top of all of that. So do your products actually make people happier? Do they give people a, a more deeply felt sense of meaning? Do they bring people closer together? Do they do any of that stuff? When you can do that, then you are having an impact that matters in the real world. And so I think managing those three sets of priorities is kind of the the interim objective. Um, And frankly, I think that companies that aren't able to do that are going to go the way of the dinosaur uh, very fast. God, it's interesting what you're saying because all those things you're you're talking about replace what we know is, I guess, marketing. Um, yeah, our, final, our final question uh, for you is, and you and you can see that. Well, we can get, talk more about it in the after show about the companies that do do education and other things as, as stand-ins for their marketing. Hmm. Um, the most important thing, of course, is what you think the importance of tumbling is. Look, I think I think that I think that's is a fantastic question. You know, you. Um, you guys put it – let me put it in a different way. I would like you guys to be more provocative about tumbling, okay? Because I think tumbling has, has a tremendous amount of potential. What, let's go back to my question of institutions. Institutions are constraints that shape interaction. Tumbling is one of those, right? Something that lets us interact in a new way. Yep. Chapter two of my book is about conversations. What are conversations? Conversations democratize stuff. But what we have today, we think yesterday's institutions are democratic. They're not. Real democracy is not just about voting. It's the weakest kind of democracy. Real democracy is deliberative. It's about deliberation. It's associative. It's about trust and association. Hopefully, and it's consensual. Reality. It's about building a real consensus. I think tumbling can help us do all of those things. 
We talked earlier about the, the kind of meaningless ritual that is the State of the Union. It's a meaningless ritual because America doesn't have what I call a deep democracy. It's got a shallow democracy. We go out once every four years and we vote and we call it democracy. It's not much of a democracy. I think the real promise of tunneling is, is to get us closer to that ideal of a deliberative, associative, consensual democracy. And An essential really... democracy. Where there's a sensual <laughs> democracy, there's a happy country. There you go. That's a that's new gonna, I think I actually think that's a tougher stretch for America than uh, reinventing our capitalist system. <laughs> oh, Sadly, essential democracy. So, so we've we've been we've been. I, I think you've given us the fuel to um, light our tumbling manifesto that we've been meaning to write. We but have. what you're saying is really important because you know we the three of us and all of us believe that you know if you have porous walls and institutions and you need to connect across silos and horizontally. It's the tumbler that does that in every organization, whether it's the CEO or people within the institution at all levels. So, um, and, you know, that's why we started off our conversation picking on the title of community manager. We love them, but I don't want them to go the way of webmasters. I want them to be viewed as the people that actually get things done. I mean, Hegel and John Seeley Brown talked about it a little bit. John talked about when he was on our show a little bit in the power of pull. It's people who bring others together if that's the new firm right is if if it's value networks and so the same thing as like obama and the state of the union talking about teachers being important and then the overwhelming response on twitter was yeah here's the reality of what it is to be a teacher and how you're treating these folks so we're sort of saying the same thing if you think your whole business relies on what you're calling community um then you need to reward those people your ceo better be able to do it Guys, let's look. Let's just go down the list of tired, lame, tedious, obsolete, brain dead 20th century organizations that could use uh, the practice known as tumbling. I mean, All look at what's going on in Switzerland right now Davos, the World right. Economic Forum. Oh, God. But look at how it runs. Look at how it's organized. Exactly. I right. mean, you have to pay a ton of money to get in there. We're going to do a TumbleCon. We have to. And yes, it, we're doing TumbleCon this summer. Somewhere. So, listen, we're going to have to wrap up this show. It's been just an amazing show. Please stay with us, everyone. We can have quite a long, if Umer has the time and you guys want to be here, we can have a long post-show. And, Umer, please, please come back because there's just too much to talk about. Uh, I would love to. Thanks for having me, guys. It's just a pleasure. And, uh, so, this has been episode 50. Uh, it's been a wonderful time with all of you. And uh, I'm Heather Gold at HEATHR on Twitter. I'll be speaking about tumbling uh, and doing it because I think it's not fair just to just talk about it, but you have to do it at OCAD, Ontario College of Art and Design, in Toronto, February 16th, and teaching a workshop and I'm presenting, which is essentially teaching people how to tumble a room. Um, the next day, and um, that'll be in Seattle, at April 17th. You uh, can get tickets to those at mpresenting.com, or if you want me to come, just get in touch with me on Twitter or my sites. And Deb is at D-A-B-S, right, on Twitter? Uh, I'm Debs um, at Twitter, and I actually have two upcoming talks on tumbling. One is going to be a webinar, which I will put up on the Tumble blog in the middle of March. Um, and the other is at South by Southwest. The, the, the title, Umer will love this, is Dear Miss Manners, WTF Social Media. 
<laughs> and we will get into a little bit of tumbling and a little bit around the new social contract that we need to create as a result of all these all this hyper-connectedness, tumbling being Which a sounds like Omer's idea of a new institution, human constraints. Exactly. Totally, I talk about totally. social Deb, contracts. Deb will be yeah. winning the future. Awesome. WTF. It's about and, time. <laughs> and Kevin Marks is at? I'm Kevin Marks. Say um, it your beautiful accent. Say it. Kevin, M-A-R-K-S. Um, and I'm actually that on most things. If you search for that, you'll find me. Um, I don't currently have a talk at South by Southwest. So if anyone out there has a panel they'd like me to join, um, please sign me up. I'd be, I'd be interested in um, going along there as an official speaker rather than as a, um, a random passerby. Mayor has a capitalist manifesto. If you're interested in reading more of it, where is the best URL? I know that your Twitter handle is U-M-A-I-R-H, but where's the best way to, to get your book? Uh, just go to my uh, my blog at, at HBR. So just type in Omer and HBR into Google and, and you'll find it in a second. Well, I want to thank – thanks for uh, having a wonderful conversation. There's been so many incredible people with us today, Jonathan Dean and Shelley Cat Caverly, new folks here, Colin H. from Canada, I think, Daryl. Zounce and Morvey, please join us again next week where we'll be uh, having Brady Forrest from O'Reilly as our guest and Debs and founder of Ignite. And I just want to say we have people on the talk today from Australia, Tokyo, Canada, the U.S., and I think um, and Europe. So there you go. We're truly global. Tumalicious. So uh, the show is produced by Andrew Hazlitt at A-N-D. R-E-W-H-A-Z-L-E-T-T of uh, the new modern.net. I'll translate that. That was Z for you Amer- Americans since I'm both. I'll speak both. And for more about tumblers, tumbling, you could always uh, follow the hashtag T-U-M-M-E-L or visit us on our site. Give questions or responses to Umer or anybody else you want to see on the show. Or if you guys want to be on the show and you want to get into a topic, let us know. It's, it's not about fame. It's about Real value, real human betterment of our lives. That's T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N dot TV. You could also check out all of our great archived episodes. We've had some awesome ones with musicians and performance artists and other economists and um, just amazing people. Uh, so we hope you'll see us here. We're every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll see you here next week. Night, good people.